Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast for your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jed Brewer. Bully! With us all the way from Oakridge, Tennessee is Lee Younger. Yes, now. And I don't know if Matt knows that reference. Oh. I'm pushing the Matt King brain. Yes, now. That is hysteria. God! I was going to try to get him. Unbelievable. That was the only yes, thing I now. remember that. That and I believe there was a... You are correct, sir. Yeah, that was like a... <laughs> For those of us who, for those of you who aren't in the exact four-year age belt <laughs> that Lee and I are, um, Hysteria was a an Animaniacs or something offshoot that was like an after-school yes. history-themed cartoon show. Huh. Yes, it, I think it started as one of the segments on the Animaniacs, and then it got its own thirty-minute slot. And as was the style at the time of weirdly. Because you have to understand, youth, um, for um, now, you know, culture moves very quickly. There's a, you know, a, a, a TikTok trend that's here today, gone tomorrow, the whole thing. Um, that was not always the case. Cultural references hung around for a long time. Yeah. So on this children's show yeah. in the 90s, there was one of the kid characters who just did an impression of a person who was the sidekick on a late night television show from the sixties to eighties <laughs> named Ed McMahon. That's, that's and that true. was, uh, that was that character. And that was the amount of drugs you had to be on to write a child show in the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Yeah. Oh, that was, I may not have any brain cells left for the rest of the show. Cause that one, that one caused me to dig deep, deep into the uh, the cerebellum right there. <laughs> Speaking of digging deep and uh, entertainment properties from the past, I'm forced to declare a cinematic emergency. Oh, whoa. so I'm, I'm on the Wikipedia page for Hysteria, and it ran from uh, 1998 to 2000. Okay, and then uh, reruns aired until 2001. So at the same time, in the entertainment space, we have found an artifact from Christian culture of yore. Uh Uh-huh. This is a film from 2001 called Judgment. Ooh. (laughs) The quiver in Jed's voice. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, and I will, I, we will put, I will put uh, on Twitter or something, this, uh, this, uh, box art in the old VHS style because it was that that drew me to this. It is called Judgment, and the the kind of image here is Mr. T in all his uh, mohawked glory, and then a couple of uh, much more buttoned down actors in suits. So I saw this movie that's clearly post apocalyptic, starring Mr. T, and thought I must learn more. Yeah, that's right. Move. So I Googled. And there's no Wikipedia entry. There's no plot summary on IMDb. I had to go all the way to something called dove.org, which <laughs> brands itself as faith and family focused reviews for today's media. Very liberal definition of the word today, but go on. And media. <laughs> <laughs> so, and there you know, and I found. 
the only plot summary I could on Al Gore's internet for judgment. <laughs> it reads thusly. Good versus evil. It's a colossal battle as old as eternity itself, but this time it's going to court. Ba-bum. Mitch Kendrick, Corbin Burnson, is a respected lawyer troubled by his lost faith and haunted by the memory of his deceased father. To make matters worse, he is visited by his ex-lover and O-N-E, One Nation Earth, prosecutor Victoria Thorne. Mitch Kendrick and Victoria Thorne. This sounds like possibly a different kind of movie, but we're going to push on. <laughs> Played by Jessica Steen, who makes him an offer he can't refuse. He's ordered to defend the Christian resistor Helen Hanna, played by Lee Lewis, who has been indicted on charges of hatred against humanity, or face the wrath of Franco Mucaluso, supreme leader of one. So that's a lot to put into yeah. one paragraph. Wow. Yeah. Apparently this is part of a, like, sub left behind series of books that got turned into movies. And you may notice that we- I'm, I'm just saying we got, we got to the phrase Supreme leader, like way faster than. Yeah. I thought it would. Yeah. You know, well, I, I feel that one of the criticisms of like your, your Marvel movies and your franchise movies of today is they spend too much time on the kind of catching everyone up on the, you know, previously, and here's where all these characters are. And, you know, quick, quick thing to remind us who likes each other and hates each other. But there's such a thing as overcorrecting. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to give me a Supreme leader. You kind of got to tell me what's going on there. <laughs> a reluctant Kendrick accepts the case only to find that his entire proceeding has been rigged and his client will be found guilty regardless of his defense. So in case you you wonder if the rigged trial thing has been a trope for longer than the previous presidential administration. Yeah. 2001. Helen, outraged at Victoria for her deception and frustrated by Helen's unwillingness to denounce her beliefs, he decides that the only way to uncover the real truth is to put God himself on trial. Kendrick proposes this to Mukaluso, who likes the idea of putting his eternal nemesis on trial. So apparently this guy's the devil, too. Again, just not enough detail. God himself is on trial for crimes against humanity. It's simply too good to be true. He allows Mitch to proceed, even though Vicky is against the idea. Meanwhile, JT Quincy, Mr. T, just (laughs) also Mr. T is there. Sure. Rages against the unjust trial of Helen (laughs) Hannah, a man of action and tried of the, and tired of the passive resistance of his fellow Christians. He's determined to strike a blow against the evil of Macaluso. Quincy plots a daring escape plan to break Helen out that is fraught with danger and enlists the help of some not-so-faithful friends. But as Kendrick slowly unveils the truth throughout the trial, he not only experiences a personal epiphany, but is also made aware of the deceitful lies and evil machinations that Mukaluso uses to control the world. Suspense mounts as these perilous events close in on themselves, and the world waits breathlessly for the Supreme Court's final judgments. <laughs> this is all the way back wow. in 2001, but there's something deeply disturbing that in these wacko fundamentalist apocalyptic vision, even after the end of all things and rapture and tribulation, all that, there's still a Supreme court. Of course we worked hard on that. We're not giving it up. <laughs> that's, that's the one thing they believe in. You know, when I think of all the evils in, in this world, and there's a lot to choose from that, you know, we'd want to focus on, we'd really want to, Make public enemy number one. I'm really glad that for an extended period, evangelical Christians in the United States are like, it's the UN. That's the worst evil we can imagine. 
the way that they not terribly effectively fight for the environment and against genocide. That's the worst evil I can imagine. Also, to pair with what Jed's saying, the greatest daring and brave thing they can possibly imagine is someone not giving up their faith. (laughs) That's that's it. (laughs) That's as that's as righteous as we can possibly come up with. That's as far as the human imagination goes. That's the best thing you can do to actually help someone else. That's the best witness. Although uh, Jesus, who appears in the book that they mm-hmm. say they like, in the early part, that's boring. <laughs> <laughs> they will know that you're my disciples by the way that you refuse to denounce your faith. <laughs> No, he didn't say that. He didn't. That's not what he said. I like that we also have a proto God's not dead situation where, you know, it's the weird kind of atheist professor is like, I will make you sign a thing to pass philosophy 101. The only section of it that's offered at this large college for some reason that there is no God. This, these people's conception of atheists is what they really want to do is put God on trial. Yeah. I don't, I don't think they do. Would we like to hear the Dove review? Man, I'd love to hear the Dove review. So first, I'll walk you through the Dove rating system that exists on this site. So there's positive rating categories and negative rating categories, ranging from one to five. Uh, There are two positive categories, faith and integrity. Ah. And there are six negative categories. And I think that ratio says something about the way a lot of Christians perceive of media. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they are as follows. Sex, language, Ooh. violence, drugs, nudity, other. Oh, I won't stand for other. We don't we do not permit other in this home. Fascinated by what would fall <laughs> into other there. Um, and either uh, the fine people at dove.org did not watch this or did not care for it because there's a zero positive rating. It doesn't get marks or anything. And only a one negative rating because there's a one for violence. Ah. Dove review is as follows. The courtroom setting of judgment is a great change from the action adventure of the early titles in the series. Again, they made several of these movies. In addition to the God on trial plot, the film keeps you on the edge of your seat from start to finish. All the actors deliver a great performance. There have been a number of lies in this so far. I have to believe non-Christians will not find judgment to be a sermon, but a great story of villain versus hero set in a courtroom. No. Every part of this movie is great and will drag you in. I don't think that's a phrase. (laughs) Draw you in. Oh, it'll drag you in. That's all this movie does. Even if you don't believe in God and biblical prophecy, you will still think that judgment is a great movie. Okay. uh, I have many thoughts. One of them is I just pictured Jed Jed being dragged in by a movie and, and him just like, would you please let go of my shirt? <laughs> please, hey, movie, would you please let go? Let, honestly, honestly, let go of my shirt. Two, Jed, you've tried to impress this upon me in the past, but doesn't it take like a ludicrous amount of money and coordination, especially before the days of things like Final Cut Pro, really good yeah, cameras yeah. and phones and things like that to make a movie? Yeah, we think this was 2001. Is that right? I believe that is the, uh, yeah. that's what Google's telling me the release date was. It was real, real expensive to make a feature-length motion picture in 2001. Like, really expensive. (laughs) I'm just dumb. Yeah. Y'all put real money into making this atrocity. 
I mean, Mr. T doesn't come cheap. <laughs> no. What I'm fascinated by is what they rate like actual movies. So I'm just on the okay. homepage scrolling through things. Okay. Let's see. Spider-Man No Way Home gets nothing for faith and a two for integrity. A one for sex, three for language, three for violence, one for drugs, two for other. Oh, let's see what the let's see what other is. Other casting spells as Peter tries to reverse damage done when his secret true identity was revealed. Other is apparently the witchcraft there category. <laughs> I'm trying to find just like something that's really out there. I searched for Goodfellas and they just don't have it. <laughs> well, I, I have one that I, I think we'll enjoy. So please. I've looked up, uh, certainly in the running for one of the finest movies ever made, Casablanca. Sure. It, it has a negative rating of seven. <laughs> um, wow. It gets a one on the sex front, one on language, a two on violence, a two on drugs, and a one on nudity. I have seen Casablanca. I, I'm pretty sure there was no nudity. I, I can confidently right. assert that there was no nudity whatsoever in Casablanca <laughs> at all. Oh, here we go. They have Deadpool. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Let's see here. It gets zero for faith and zero for integrity. I hate to tell you. Five for sex, five for language, four for violence, four for drugs, three for nudity, four for other. Other? <laughs> and the and the and the other ones like the Spider-Man one, like you can scroll down and it'll say like three for language. You know they use an audio word. This one they didn't fill out like what it is. Like they, it just gives the number. Like I'm sure they were too horrified to recount why they gave that rating. <laughs> oh, I kid you not. We could just put movies into this search bar for the rest yeah, of the show and have a lot of fun. Yeah, as a as a <laughs> Olive Branch to the people at Dove.org. Um, if you would like to make this the number one site that the hosts of this show lists visit on the internet, all you have to do is make it so that I can sort it by what gets the worst rating from you. <laughs> like, you know, you go to like Amazon, like, oh, rate by sort by price from da-da-da. If you make it so, what movie Dove.org hated the most? I will spend so much time on this website. Well, I, I have one that would certainly be in the running that I'm I'm very pleased to have discovered. So for, for our listeners, it's important to note that that first, all films that they carry are either listed as Dove approved or not Dove approved. Yes. This is strongly in the not Dove approved category. It is the Sir Anthony Hopkins vehicle Hannibal. And Oh my. We have a negative rating combined of sixteen, sex two, language three, violence five. Drugs three, nudity one, other two. And do they define other? They they do not appear to. Okay, so I've I've looked at uh at the review for Wonder Woman, Uh-oh. which is okay. Dove approved. The rated eighteen plus, um, gets a four positive rating, all coming from integrity, and a twelve negative rating. I guess they didn't mind the fact that she's a Greek god. Um, but. They have what can only be described as a code system for their language rating. Okay. Language two mild colon H comma D comma OMG. Okay. 
This is a fascinating look inside something I'm very glad to not be a part of. <laughs> Again, find people of the dove.org community. Just give me a thing where I, and I, I want like the notebook of the person from dove.org who had to review Deadpool for them. And I want the, just like the minute by minute blow, blow by blow of that. I, the other thing, when, when you hit the, sh- the search bar, it says search over 12,000 titles. So for a site like this, that they're supposedly telling you about all kinds of media, there's a couple of problems. One, that's not terribly comprehensive. Not a lot. Um, at the, o- the other side of that, fact is how many people work at dove.org and how many of these movies have you actually watched and how much of this are we just kind of filling in the blanks here and turning in some deliverables and getting stuff up on the site because i mean do we think that dove.org is such a vast organization that we have like even 12 people manning this operation. So they've each watched a thousand movies a piece. This is, this is the problem that I'm, that I'm trying to pinpoint. Just kind of an SEO farm. Right. Okay. So this is not the the one they hated the most, but it was an interesting one to me. They have a review for the, the current uh, Lord of the Rings series is on Amazon rings of power. Yeah. And I'm reading through it. Luckily, they don't dock point for there being black people in it, which is a huge relief. Um, so uh, this, it, it's the first one I've looked at that does get uh, points for faith. For fans of Tolkien, Valinor symbolizes helping. The elves fight to defeat Morgoth, who is the type of the devil. People of humanity are tempted by Morgoth. Okay. Two for integrity. No sex. No language. Two for violence. Fantasy. War fighting and violence. Two for other jump scares. Scary creatures. There's a one for nudity. And you may think back if you've seen that and thought, I don't recall a lot of nudity. I'm going to give right. you an amazing sentence that is just written as it is written. Stranger man falls from the sky and is in small shorts. What? <laughs> <laughs> Which if you've seen even the, even the trailer for the show, there's like a, a, a meteor and there's a guy in it. We don't know who it is, but just, I love this. If you hadn't seen anything about this, just the small picture shorts. of a Homer Simpson style character in small shorts, just ah, whomp. that's that's <laughs> incredible. It, here is uh, the most negative review I've been able to find, and I'm shocked that they have this at all. So, one of my all time favorite directors is a guy named Joe Carnahan. Um, I just I think he's a brilliant dude. Is he edifying? No, strongly not. Well, actually, I take that back. The Gray is an incredibly edifying movie that is amazing generally no so this was his <laughs> 2006 um like 80 percent action 20 percent extremely dark comedy called smoke and aces and it has a combined negative rating of 24 Ooh. um that's, wow. that's the most negative i can find and under under details um when you uh when you score out i'm i'm going to read other this is incredible Quote, just the overall depravity, crudeness, crass, violent, obscene nature of the film was disgusting. Wow. So 
I have not seen that movie, Jed. I found something that has a negative rating of 20. Okay. Not Dove approved. Stranger Things. Uh-huh. Really? The TV, the most streamed thing in the history of Netflix. Isn't that, I have not seen the Stranger Things, isn't it? The subtext, at least, about children banding together to fight an evil and learn lessons along the way. That's right. Friendship, um, relationships, family. Being yourself. All of those kinds of things. Growing to accept others as they are. Right. Some superpowers laced in there. You know, um, but yeah, the like over 1 billion hours streamed on Netflix this past summer. And they're like, they're like, no, it's almost our least favorite thing. <laughs> and one of the, one of the negative ratings was for other. So I read it okay. and it talked about how disrespectful children are to adults. That's why I can't watch the Simpsons. <laughs> That's why it was banned in my house growing up. <sighs> Thank you, James Dobson. Yeah. Nudity. Some male characters are seen shirtless. That's not what nudity means. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing more shameful than the human body. Can't think of a single thing. Both the protagonists and the antagonists are deceitful. Oh. Amazing. This is an amazing website. Yes, we, we could literally do this for the rest of the episode. So on this moment, we will declare <laughs> emergency off. But if you are a work-from-home person and have a little time you need to kill, just... Typing, uh, searching for random movies in the dove.org uh, canon here is really, really a fun way to spend 20 minutes, gotta say. We hope you, and we hope you enjoyed it as well. If you find a lower rating than 24, please let us know. I really, I really want to know. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, at Jed Brewer, at Lee Younger, at Matt Kinger, but all those are on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Please share with us the lowest rated. Um, uh, dove.org ratings you can find let's yep. let's have that as a fun group project keep scouring the website for that <laughs> and if you f- know any way i can personally get in touch with the person who reviewed deadpool for dove.org <laughs> again i want to buy that person a sandwich and just hear about that <laughs> but for now we're going to move on to your fine questions if you have a question for us you can handle us all the way to the end i'll give some ways to get in touch with us or you can scroll down to your episode description click the links you find there First question comes in this week and says, I recently heard about the Billy Graham rule. I can see why it might make sense, but also seems really legalistic and maybe sexist. Is it a good idea? An excellent question. A couple of explainers and caveats up up top. First, I will explain uh, what is uh, known as the Billy Graham rule, if you're not familiar with that. Um, It comes from late evangelist and uh, man whose taped conversations with Richard Nixon have recently resurfaced again to... Um, concerning effect, Billy Graham. Uh, but this is one of the smarter things I think he, he is known for. Uh, he basically would not be alone with a woman who was not his wife um, in really any context once he had gotten really famous because the general idea was um, that's like an accountability thing. If I'm alone uh, for whatever reason with a woman, she can claim something happened. Someone can assume something happens. It's a whole big mess. Um, and this is just a way to head that off. Has recently come up again. I believe uh, former uh, Vice President of the United States Mike Pence uh, was very um, openly self righteous, if you can believe it, about following said Billy Graham rule. And uh, it's come up with, you know, a lot of recent things with pastors and stuff we talked about last week and stuff. So some people are talking again about whether or not this is a good idea. So that's caveat number one. Caveat number two 
in case you didn't notice of us uh, gleefully uh, recounting uh, horrible action movies we loved in the last segment, we're all guys. So we yeah. can speak to this from our perspective. We can speak out generally. What we cannot speak to is the experience of being someone who is feels that they are not invited into the innermost uh, circles and the uh, conversations where things are getting hashed out because of our gender. Um, that is a, a common and very valid criticism of something like the Billy Graham rule um, in, in a work context, whether that work is secular or in a church. You know, if you can't ever have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with your boss, then how are you going to uh, advocate for your own ideas or, you know, have build relationships with people in your organization in a way that maybe your male colleagues can uh, certainly a valid criticism. And we can speak to that theoretically. We, we cannot speak to the emotional experience of being on that end. So I say that uh, for two reasons. One, just to, to lay that out and acknowledge that we know that the other thing is if you are someone who has been in that situation and you feel like we missed something, you feel like we get something wrong or there's something you'd like to add to that. Let us know. Uh, uh, shoot us an email. Uh, if you're following us on any social media platform, go ahead and uh, DM me. If you'd like to add some of that conversation that you feel like we missed, we would love to hear from you and we would love to uh, fill in any gaps in that way. But with that uh, said from up front, Lee, in the general idea, I think I, I totally agree with the tension kind of that our, our um, question asker here is saying of, I can see why someone may think this is a good idea. But there are these problems. So where do we start with kind of picking through whether or not this is a thing or not? It is such um, it's such an interesting issue because pieces of it um, on from a certain angle, you could look at something that someone's trying to accomplish and say, I can see what what was going through your head when you came up with that. In the same way that you could say that about the way that all so many things in legalism got started, you know, here is a standard. We want to make sure that we never cross the line of that standard or appear that we've crossed the line of that standard. So let's make a standard that's so many more degrees of magnitude strict that no one would ever even assume that we've gotten anywhere near the thing that we actually don't want to cross. The problem is, is that there was supposed to be freedom in all of those areas that you have now crossed out. So um, the classic biggest example of this is we're not supposed to take the name of God in vain. Okay, well, then let's never say his name. If we never even say his name, then no one will ever be able to accuse us of taking God's name in vain because we are a people who simply never say his name. Well, that was never intended. It was never intended that you're supposed to have the kind of relationship with God where you cannot utter his name in a prayer, um, address him in any way, or speak about him to someone else. So the, there, as you're saying, there's there in some, from some angle, from some degree, there could seem to be some complicated place where you could maybe squint and see how this would, from somebody's angle, make sense. But the problems are everything you listed, Matt. It's a bad idea, and it perpetuates patriarchy. It perpetuates women's voices being sidelined. It If... Like if businesses are run this way, it just means that women's voices are not in the inner circle. They're not in meetings. There are certain ideas that get shared 
that don't happen in the the biggest formal meeting of a group of people outside those kinds of structures in a car ride or over a lunch, over coffee. And if somebody in a leadership role won't even meet with someone because of their gender or because of something, then that person's voice or their ideas, they won't be allowed to contribute. They won't be invited in all of that stuff. We need to look at so, I mean, the church in general, but especially the church in America in particular, needs to look at so many issues surrounding women in ministry. It's a huge conversation that people need to take a huge look at. And the thing is, is that <clears throat> the Billy Graham rule, one of the things that if if you adhere to the Billy Graham rule, one thing you don't want to do is read John chapter 4. Like, you can't. Because that's where Jesus has a private meeting with a woman by himself for an extended period of time. No one else is there. The only reason we know about the meeting is that Jesus told John about it, who then included it in his book. What you don't want to read is any of the places where Paul thanks people who helped him and supported him in his ministry, who partnered with him, because the lists are filled, filled with the names of women. Paul partnered and worked right alongside in his ministry, so many women that he names like by name. And by the way, certain people have been so uncomfortable with the idea of women being in a position of leadership in ministry that (laughs) they actually changed the name of somebody that Paul mentions to a man's name. In the 16th chapter of the book of Romans, Paul enlisting all these people that he works with, that he partners with, who have been right alongside him in meetings and strategy conversations and everything about reaching people, strengthening churches, building them up, all the normal ministry kind of stuff. He mentions someone who is prominent among the apostles. That means an apostle who everybody recognizes. Not only is this person an apostle, they are hardcore amazing at everything that they do in ministry. This is someone who is prominent among the apostles. Everybody looks up to him. They're great. And her name was Junia. And that's what Paul wrote in the original language. When the the English Standard Version of the Scriptures was developed, um, they had a couple of goals in mind. One of them was to make sure that that any um, <clears throat> any places where you would see like traditionally brothers and sisters, they would crunch that down to brothers. Where you would see the words humanity, they would crunch that down into the word mankind. Um, specifically in Romans chapter 16, they changed the name Junia to Junius. Other versions of the scriptures, when they translate it, they say prominent, um, 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 like not prominent among the apostles, but someone who the apostles say is prominent. So they change the wording of the, of the sentence. It's all, all of that stuff winds up ending up in a way to sideline women from their access to leadership in ministry. If you are uncomfortable with the idea that women have, have a place in the ideas, in the sharing of the message, in the teaching, in the singing, in the songwriting, in the development, in the ministry, in any phase of any kind of ministry work, I, I don't want to say this clearly, do not read the Bible. <laughs> because you will be made very uncomfortable. You'll be made very uncomfortable with Jesus meeting one-on-one with women. 
with the first person Jesus sends out to preach the resurrection being a woman. The first person that Jesus told directly that he was a Messiah was not only a woman, but a woman from the race everybody else hated. Um, Do not read the Bible if you are uncomfortable with women being in positions of leadership and partnership with those who are in ministry and those who are in ministry spaces, having strategy conversations and right there in the mix with, with everything that matters. We need to... We need to look at this stuff, and and Matt's exactly right. What we need to do, especially if the we includes men, is we need to ask women how they feel, how they've been treated, and we need to listen for a long time. Very, very well put. A fantastic way to start that off. And Jed, where would we take it from there? Very well put indeed. So the original question says it seems really legalistic. I would argue not only is it really legalistic, it is literally legalistic. Let me explain why I say that. It is an overly strict, one-size-fits-all edict created with, I guess, good intentions that ends up causing uh, more problems than it solves. And so, you know, that's that's literally the definition of legalistic stuff. That and and it's objectifying. And it's objectifying. (laughs) So let's take a a look at at a case study for a second. And the case study is going to be the idea of gambling. Here's the thing about gambling. Like, it can cause real problems in people's lives. There are some folks that just, it becomes a compulsive thing. It becomes an obsessive thing. You, you know, you literally, um, you know, get, you know, lose your house in a night. That, that can happen. It, it can be a danger. It's, it's something to be, to be aware of. Also, for plenty of people, getting a scratcher every now and then just as a fun thing is not a problem and totally cool. But what kind of a legalistic mindset says is, Gambling could be a problem. It has been a problem for some people. So wouldn't it be safer? Wouldn't it be better if we just said no one gets to gamble at all? No gambling for anybody. All forms of gambling are bad. I can track the logic like I can I can follow. We don't have homeowners insurance. Ned considers it gambling for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Just like with Ned Flanders, I can track the logic. I can get it. A few things on that. The first is, so you're aware, um, just like with everything Lee said, the apostles literally rolled dice to pick Judas's replacement. (laughs) They literally rolled dice to pick Judas's replacement. Shook him and blew on him beforehand. The whole day. (laughs) Daddy. (laughs) We need a new apostle. We need a new apostle. Come on. Yeah. They... So there's like zero. If you if you want to believe gambling is bad for everyone, don't read the Bible. Two sixes, two sixes is twelve. That's all I'm saying, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But the other thing about outlawing gambling in that way is it's one of those things where Jesus and Paul are actually both very clear in the exact same direction of God is not cool with that line of thinking. That line of thinking where you just kind of invent new rules for people. God is not cool with that. God is not okay with that. And even though it felt like it was the safe thing to do and we keep everybody, you know, just on the up and up, still, God not cool with it. Jesus says this. Paul says this. It's it's really, really clear. And so you said this seems really legalistic. It is. It's, it's literally legalistic. And the Bible, uh, although it does not in any way disenfranchise women or say that gambling is bad, it does say that legalism is bad. Quite clearly and repeatedly. There's another angle of this that that might be worth looking at um, that 
just just food for thought. So there are people in the world who really look up to Billy Graham. I'm not one of them. I don't actually I'm not here to say anything bad about the guy. But like if if those who engage in hero worship on Billy Graham, I'm not one of those people. Um, what I can say is the guy was a huge international celebrity who had a media empire and a lot on the line if something went wrong. And so he made a decision to protect that investment. That's what he did. You can argue that it was good. You can argue that it was bad. You can argue that it was biblical. You can argue that it was anti-biblical. He was a huge media celebrity with an enormous international empire worth a lot of money who made a decision to protect that investment. Here's my question for you. Are you a huge international celebrity with an enormous media empire who may need to protect that investment? Because if you're not, then this definitely would not apply to you because that is the actual reasoning that was driving this decision. That's actually, I want to be clear. That's not to say anything bad about Billy Graham, but that's to tell the truth about what this was a huge global media empire with a lot of money on the line and one guy at the head of it, meaning if something goes wrong with his reputation, this all goes away and a decision to protect that investment. And it's worth looking at. You, you go to maybe maybe it's sexist. This is one of the things about when people make decisions in order to protect huge businesses is it almost always hurts people along the way. The decisions that we make that are best for an enormous multinational corporation almost always hurt people along the way. You know how there's no ethical consumption under capitalism? That applies here, too. This is – Matt, you may need to cut this later, but I'm on a roll. Billy Graham is Christian capital. (laughs) Billy (laughs) Billy Graham is Christian capitalism, man. It, it was those two things sandwiched together, and the very nature of that kind of endeavor is it's going to hurt people along the way. Ah, I've just been texted to note that one of his children has a net worth of $11 million. One of his children. Wow, he must be really, really good at what he does for the market to reward him, so. Yeah. So... I I will get off my soapbox. I will get off my high horse. It is literally legalistic. It kind of misses the point, though. This was a business decision. Um, And if you're not in that kind of business, then this definitely wouldn't apply. And and let me give you one more example. Like, if you work, if you're an executive at the Coca-Cola Corporation, you cannot be seen drinking a Pepsi product. They are not going to be cool with that. If you're not an executive at Coke, though, you can drink any beverage you want. Given that you listening to this are not an executive for the Coca-Cola Corporation, you can drink whatever you want. You're also not the head of a global multinational media empire. You don't need to worry about this. The end. That's your opinion, Jed. (laughs) I might be the the CEO of a multi-million dollar international something. It could happen. And to go back to our previous episode, no matter what company you work for, if you're seen in public drinking surge, that is rightly going to bring uh, aspersions (laughs) upon your decision-making ability. Yes, uh, all great stuff from both of these guys. I, I will throw one thing on the the end here, which is let's let's try to brainstorm what a decent version of this that is not steeped in his Lee pointed out patriarchy and sexism, both from excluding women from certain conversations and also let's be honest, um, a baseline uh, belief that women can't be trusted 
uh, for their right. lust for money and power and whatever will just overcome them and they will either give into the carnal urges or make up a lie or whatever. Which again, on the lie part, to to Jed's point, if you're a huge celebrity who has a lot of money riding on you, you should not be alone with people, yeah. men or women. You always yeah. need someone there to corroborate your story. Yeah, absolutely. And like actual CEOs and like they have that. You don't. Yeah. Nobody gets a solo meeting with Jeff Bezos. Because there needs to be someone that Jeff Bezos is paying who's there to uh, correct the record on anything that person might say he said. Yep. So let's put some of that stuff aside and say you are a pastor, small group leader, whatever. Uh, somebody who wants to be able to interact with uh, people of the opposite gender uh, or anyone in your uh, kind of community. and But not have these lingering ideas that you know there's so much of going on in the culture. There are ways to do that. Um, you could, and I'm going to, I'm going to say something crazy here, y'all. You could meet someone at a restaurant. They have them everywhere. Yeah. You could sit at a coffee shop and have that conversation because <clears throat> then there'd be people around. That'd be fine. You can have your door open when you talk with someone in the office. You can hopefully have other people on your pastoral or leadership, or whatever team who you can tell I am meeting with miss so-and-so today from this time to this time. Here's what we will be discussing. I am letting you know I'm having that meeting. So if someone sees Miss So-and-So walk out of my office at end of timetable, you knew ahead of time that I was having a meeting with her. If if Miss So-and-So shows up at the uh, at the church office because she's having a very hard time and needs to talk to somebody, you can do that on the front porch. You can text your uh, colleagues, Miss So-and-So has showed up and I'm talking to her in the office about X, Y, and Z. These are all things you can do and still in, engage with people, still interact with people. But these are actual accountability things. And the thing about yeah. accountability is you have to actually, sometimes you are also the one being held to account. And it's a little messy. It's a little more confusing than just cutting off vast swaths of problems before they start. Which, as we pointed out in this episode and talking about the Matt Chandler stuff last week, um, from a business standpoint, can often be the expedient thing to do. To just cut something off the knees and not worry about it, um, just kind of uh, chunk through that can oftentimes be the expedient thing for a business standpoint to do. To Lee's great point last episode, that's not this job. That's not what ministry yep. is. You have to be able to meet with people. Sometimes you have to talk to people about sensitive subjects. Sometimes you have to talk about uh, things where people do need some privacy, need some one-on-one uh, -on -one time. That's fine. There are ways to do that if you think your way through it uh, that are actually based in things like accountability integrity, transparency, but uh, those things are all very, very much the opposite of legalistic thinking. So we do have to kind of push to the one or the other there. Move on to our next question here. It comes in and says, there's some situations where I know someone isn't probably isn't going to take my advice or change their behavior, but I still feel like I need to say something so that I know I have said it. Is that selfish of me or can that be healthy? Another really, really cool question. And Lee, where'd we start off here? I would start with a question for you, which is, what is your relationship to this person? Mm. Are mm. you in a position of leadership or trust where they regularly are coming to you for advice? So are you a parent? Are you um, a boss or advisor? Are you a counselor or a therapist? Are you a pastor? Do you have the kind of relationship with this person where they are seeking your advice and it's clear I'm bringing you a problem and I would like your input. 
on my problem or my situation. I'm going to share some stuff with you, and I would like to know what you think about it. And even if it's uncomfortable for me to hear, I would really be interested in your take. I think that's great, Lee. I, I, let me, I would jump in there to add there are other relationship dynamics where this might come up, but they still warrant that. So you might be the child, the, the partner, the employee, and this, and this could come from a calculus not from the top, but from the bottom and saying like, I, hey, uh, mom and dad, I don't think you're actually going to stop doing this, but I need you to tell, I need to, I need to tell you that that drives me crazy. Something like that. But again, right. that has, you have to understand the context of the relationship to get what you want out of that interaction in a healthy way. Right. That's right. So, you know, there are, there are situations where someone is treating you in a way where you need to draw a relationship boundary and you need to have that conversation. Hey, I, I need you to know this about our relationship. Um, if, if the, the way I initially understood the question to be was somebody's behaving in a certain way. I don't think it's good. I, I need to let them know th the way that I see that so that I, at least I have said it, mm -hmm. whether or not they continue in the thing, at least I've said it. And the reason I asked those initial questions of, are you in a position to, uh, where this person is seeking your advice? If that's the case, then in a gentle way and in a way where you're obviously listening to this person and caring for them and everything, I would say you get to share that information. You get to share the way that you see it. If you're not in that situation, my encouragement would be, um, let's look for a future situation where you may be able to share that information by their invitation. And let's do this for now. For now, what is a way that you could be there for that person, serve them in some way, or meet some physical need? Um, if they're having a hard time, can you show up with, you know, a movie from Redbox and some cookies? Um, if they're sad, can you be the person that, um, says, Hey, I'll come over, let's go for a walk or something like that. And you can tell me all about it. Um, if there, if there's some way that you can meet a need, how can you show up for that person and develop the kind of relationship where you're the person who's there for them? If you are able to demonstrate to them, um, I am a person who can be here for you, then there may be a day, and and it may happen faster than you think, where they come to you knowing that you care about them and say, "Man, I've got this situation. I'd really love to see. I'd really love to hear the way that you see it." Um, I tell you all that to say this: most of the time, if somebody's in a situation, especially where somebody in their in their life that's close uh, is, is not going to like it. They, they want to advise them against it or whatever you you're, they're seeing somebody you don't think is good for them or they're, they're, you know, they're hanging out with people that you think are leading them down the wrong path or whatever the situation is. And I just want to give them the advice. I don't think they're going to listen to me, but I just want to know that I said it because at least I've done my due diligence. The thing that I would encourage you, I would encourage you on two things. One, they probably already know that you feel that way. And, Two, um, they're probably not in a position to hear you. If someone is not asking for your input, they may not hear your advice. If what we're trying to do is give advice, you're going to want an invitation on that. And like I said, until we get the invitation, let's aim for the tack of how can I be there for this person? How can I meet a specific need and maybe become the kind of person that they would come to for some advice? Great, great place to start that off. And Jed, where would we go from there? 
That's awesome, man. So uh, Lee started with a question, and I I also want to ask you a question, which is I think it's worth you thinking through why you need to say something. Like, why do you need to do this? So you've written, there's some situations where I know someone probably isn't going to take my advice or change your behavior, but I still feel like I need to say something to have said it. And so my question to you, with no judgment, is why? Why do you need to, to do that? And so there's a few options that spring to mind. One is, is that to absolve yourself of blame, right? Is it something where like you feel like this could go really poorly for them and, you know, there could be consequences in their life and, you know, you don't want to feel like you share in the blame because you weren't willing to speak up. That, that could be one reason. Is there, is this like a moral imperative for you? You know, that, that sounds like, you know, I don't want my silence um, to be seen as assent to the decisions right. they're making and the things that they're doing. Um, another common one is, is this about punishing the person? You know, is this about, look, you know, um, this thing that you're doing, it feels bad to me. It feels wrong to me. And on some level I want, you know, um, I want to lash out through, through my words. That would be another common one. And I have no idea which of those or another it would be for you, but I really super think it's worth, you thinking through that why question. Um, and again, I'm not, I'm not coming with, with a judgment actually on, on any of those, but, um, if you can, um, if you can answer that why question, then you're going to be well on your way to answering your follow-up questions, which were, is that selfish of me? Is that healthy? Um, so let's go in reverse order. If, if you basically want to just kind of punish another person for the decisions that they're making, um, through pointed questions, uh, probably, yes, that is selfish of you. It may be completely understandable, uh, but it, it probably does fall in the category of selfish. Um, is it healthy? Probably not. Uh, again, it might be, it might be very understandable, but it's, it's probably not terribly healthy. We'll go to the the first one, the, the idea of absolving yourself of blame of like, you know, this could this could end really poorly. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, is it selfish of you to want to absolve yourself of blame? I don't know that it's selfish of you. Exactly. I mean, I think it, it may be born of, of care for this other person to Lee's point. It's probably not going to be terribly effective in an awful lot of situations. And it may, it may just damage the relationship more than anything else, but and and in that, it may not be the healthiest thing, but it's not necessarily selfish. But the one I really, really want to look at, actually, because I think it's such a struggle for, for folks who've grown up around church stuff, is the one that comes right in the middle, that idea of, like, I don't want my silence to be seen as assent. There are so many things where Christians are afraid that someone might think I'm endorsing their decisions. And if that's the one that you're coming from, I want to put your heart at rest. No one thinks you're endorsing anything. That is a weight and a burden that has been put on you by Christian culture. Most of that actually, in a weird way, is, is, is coming from the tie-in of Christian culture to politics. Um, no one thinks you're endorsing anything. You do not run a newspaper. Um, you are not a political candidate. Or someone in office, I assume. I can't imagine anyone with a successful political career listening to this show. So I'm going to safely assume that you do not hold any form of elected office. So, like, 
if you're not in the press, you're not in politics, you don't endorse things one way or another. Um, and um, people aren't aren't wondering about your endorsement generally. What that means is that in the vast majority of cases, you, you can probably let yourself off the hook, man. Um, if, if you're feeling a, a sense of pressure of like, you know, um, this, you know, this, this person's going to move in with their girlfriend and I, I have been raised to believe that that is bad. And if I don't say something, they think I endorse it. They don't think that they, they don't, they don't think that, um, it, it, if they know you go to church, they're, they're aware of what your church probably teaches about that. They, they don't think you're endorsing that. Um, I think this, if we can kind of take some of that pressure off, that's going to lead us back to the great stuff that Lee was saying about figuring out how to be effective when the time is right and being a person that can love and encourage this other person. Um, but you feel a sense of pressure and pressure rarely leads people to making good, effective decisions. Very rarely. And so the more we can take that pressure off, the more likely we are to figure out what a good, effective decision would look, would look like. The best way to take that pressure off is to figure out why are we feeling that pressure to do so without a sense of judgment so we can really look at it full in the face and begin to uh, dissect it and get to the core of it. If we can land on the fact that we love this other person and should the opportunity present itself, we want to communicate that love, then we know we've really got it where we need it to be. All fantastic stuff from both of these guys. We're going to move on to our final question here. Comes in and says, the whole quiet quitting thing got me thinking, is there a healthy way to set levels of effort for when I am volunteering? Feels like the people in charge will always take more, so I have to draw the line, but I feel bad sometimes. If you are not familiar with the term, quiet quitting is a kind of thing that's been going around in your New York Times, Atlantic, zeitgeisty things. Uh, semi-recently, it's basically... um. Uh, millennials and Gen Z people who are like, well, I'm going to do my work that I'm paid for. And then not more than that. And uh, people who have been getting more work, bosses and company owners, whatnot, who've been getting more work than they've been paying for, for a long time are uh, super not happy about it. So um, that that's the kind of the, the, the real quick version of quiet quitting. Um, so I think it really is interesting though, in the uh, volunteering realm, because kind of definitionally, the idea of, of quiet quitting or is much more uh, accurate term setting healthy work boundaries is I have a job, be that hourly, be that uh salary that I get paid for, um, for 40 hours or whatever. And then beyond that, um, if you want me to do more than I'm currently getting paid for, well, then you need to pay me more because that's what a job is. Again, a lot of people who have been getting away with a, a high unemployment rate for a while, I'm not thrilled about it, but that's kind of where we are. So when we, still have a work-like dynamic with a volunteer that could be at your church. I could be any other organization that has stuff to do that you've would like to be involved in, but we don't have that pay element in, in a way. I think it can make it more complicated because you are kind of drawing a line and I'm not doing that because on some level, I don't want to, there's some things I want to do or I have capacity to, I'm not pushing more to this, not about could I or whatever, and that, so I understand our question asker having a little more, more guilt on that because it's not a one-to-one -one exchange in the way that a job is, but I still think it's a very interesting uh, idea and a good one because I think uh, all three of us in the show have uh, experience as volunteers and managing volunteers, and it is something where 
you can burn out on volunteering just the same way you can a yeah. job. You can have yeah. negative experiences in that same way, just the same way you can a job. So Lee, where do we start off with the idea of setting our own boundaries for volunteering and communicating those? Um, I, I think this is a cool question and it, I, I love that you use the word boundaries. This totally is a boundaries thing, man. And it is amazing how much, um, and, and I'm sure this is true in any field. When I was getting my undergrad, the field that I was, uh, studying to be a part of was, um, was public education. And it was amazing how the, like when they were training us for public education, they were like, just so you know, when you get in the school, you're not just going to have like the thing that you're paid to do, but you're also going to have all this extra stuff that you just have to clock in for. You just have to add on. You just have to carry because otherwise this thing's not going to make it. And it's like, wait, so they already don't pay us very much, but then there's also all this extra stuff. And I think it's really interesting that people are like, Hey, uh, no, (laughs) uh, you know, no. So how about that? (laughs) <laughs> also, if you could buy all the stuff for your own classroom, cause we don't want it, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, um, of course I wound up going into, um, full-time ministry, uh, pastoring a church and not going into public education. But, um, I, the one thing I will say is in reference to what this question means for volunteer work, I think that is a super interesting question. And the, the place that I can speak to this from is that I have, always had a lot of volunteer work as a part of my life. And I I do even now, um, I volunteer with a, with like a youth outreach ministry. I volunteer with prison ministry. I volunteer in in a bunch of different stuff. And, um, what I can tell you is a, a few things. One, I have personally gotten a lot of life out of volunteer work. Um, it's, it's always been in things I've been really interested in. Um, I have met amazing people. I've had great experiences, forged and built really cool relationships. I've learned a lot. I've grown as a result of that volunteer work and hopefully, hopefully done some good in the world along the way as well. And that's all been very positive. What I can also tell you is in a lot of years of figuring out how volunteer work um, balances in my own life with my marriage my parenting, my, um, my professional vocational work and just my own kind of downtime exercise, all that stuff. I have at times, um, from different organizations been asked to give more than I should and had the capacity to give at times I have, I've gone ahead and said yes to things that I probably shouldn't have said yes, just to keep the ship at float. And that's always the way it feels. Um, at other times I have, um, you know, stood up, set the boundary and said, I cannot be there. Um, you guys are going to have to figure it out. If, if you sink, you sink. I just heard that in my head in the Drago voice from Rocky four. (laughs) If If he he dies, he sinks. He dies. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, uh, we are making, I mean, the, the people, the young people that listen to this show are like, I never know what these guys are talking about. But it kinda in any it, case it kind of weirded the folks from the from the nonprofit out when Lee showed up just for that conversation with a bright blonde buzz cut. Like that's strange. But they didn't see what they didn't see was all the high tech training he'd been doing with boxing robots <laughs> yeah. beforehand. Just exactly. Just to get into the conversation. Oh my goodness. Um but 
what I can tell you is, um, after having both of those experiences, again, the umbrella over all of this is I've gotten a lot of life out of volunteer work, hopefully done a lot of good. At times I have not set up the boundary and done more than I should have or had the capacity to do. At other times I have had a clear communication of, I cannot do that. I won't be there. What I can tell you is when I have had the second situation, when I have clearly communicated what I am able to do, I am able to give my whole heart to the actual work that I, the actual volunteer work that I can show up for so much better. Like it's such a better situation. I don't have any resentment. I can put my whole heart into the work. I can give myself completely while I'm there to doing the thing that that organization needs for me to do or would like for me to show up for. I think volunteer work is great. I think setting clear boundaries for what you can and will do is exactly the way that you should handle that. And I think that when you make that clear, um, regardless of how the person who's over that organization feels emotionally about what you're telling them, you are going to be much more dialed in when you actually are volunteering. You're going to be able to give your heart to that with nowhere near or very little or maybe zero resentment. You're going to do some good and you're not going to feel that resentment and you are going to have a whole lot more fun. So my encouragement is look for the volunteer work that you're excited about. If, if you want to volunteer for something, set clear boundaries of what you can give and then you'll be able to give your heart to it in a way that's going to fill you up and not give you any resentment. Fantastically put. That's a great place to start that off. And Jed, where would we go from there? I definitely agree with every single thing Lee said. Probably my favorite verse in the Bible says, the Lord loves a joyful giver. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And so I mentioned that to say that the thing I would encourage you to do, wherever you're going to volunteer with or donate to or whatever, is to figure out what can you give or do joyfully and say no to things past that. That would be the barometer I would really encourage you to use. And the, the, one of the things to know is that life is full of stuff where a certain amount is great and past that point is not good. Um, you know, uh, going for a 20 minute walk is amazing and wonderful. Um, a forced March for the next 20 hours is probably a war crime. So like, you know, the, the idea that more is always more is simply not true. And that's, that's the case in volunteerism as well. There's, if you find a cause that you love and that you believe in and, and a place to serve, that's awesome. There's an amount that you can do and have fun with it and have joy with it and be glad that you're doing it and feel you know, excited about it. And then there's a point where it's starting to become a drudgery. And then there's a point where you hate it. And then there's a point where you resent it. And I would really encourage you to around the point where you're not having a lot of fun with it. Let that be enough. And, and don't try to push past that. And here's the interesting thing about that. And this, this is something I'd, I'd really encourage you to think about is there are plenty of nonprofits and charities and churches and organizations that will try and take as much as they can get. But the funny thing is you having firm limits is actually the best thing for the charity too. And the reason for that is if you overdo it, whether with giving or with volunteering, you'll stop. If you, if you are giving or volunteering in a way that is not sustainable for you, you will stop doing it. And when you stop doing it, that will be really, really bad for them. Um, it is 
much better for that church, charity, organization, whatever. It's much better to, better for them if you can give or donate or volunteer in smaller ways, but that are consistent and ongoing rather than one big glut and it burns itself out and then it's gone. And so what that means is that you can either say no in kind of small ongoing ways of like, Hey, could you show up for this? No, I'm sorry. I can't. Or you can say no in a big way, a little bit down the line of, look, this is eating up all my time and I'm not having any fun anymore. And I'm just not going to do this anymore. Um, you, you're probably going to end up saying no one way or another. One of those no's is much better for you and much better for them. Uh, the other one's actually not great for, for anybody. The one other thing that, that I would point you to that I don't know if I have a great solution for it, but I, I would encourage you just to be aware of it and think about it is that knowing how to engage with volunteers in a way that provides them with a good experience is a specific skill set that many nonprofits and organizations do not possess. Um, creating and crafting a situation that is rewarding to the people who are doing the volunteer work, also beneficial to the organization, um, and that kind of feels like everybody wins and like, man, that was great, and I'd, I'd love to do it again soon. That actually takes a lot of work and expertise. Uh, that is really something much harder to find than you would think. And given that it's a specific skill set that's hard to find, A, the people who have that skill set end up getting actually pretty damn good jobs in the nonprofit sector um, because the nonprofit sector is a lot bigger than, than you think it is. So uh, just as a quick example, like most medical societies like the AMA or whatever, right, a lot of the internal workings of a lot of those societies are done by doctors doing volunteer work. They are volunteering their time within that organization. And those societies employ people to make sure that that's a really good experience because they really want that to keep going. It's super, super matters. And so people that get good at that, they, they tend to get those kind of jobs. And what can happen is that a lot of nonprofits, they really believe in their mission, but they don't have a ton of resources and they don't have people with that specific skill set. And so they tend to create a situation where they get a lot of churn of volunteers because they don't know what they're doing. And so kind of chewing people up and spitting them out is about all they've got. With that in mind, something that I would encourage you to think about is actually being not only clear and assertive with telling people no, but places that you volunteer, it's something to think about, just, just something to ponder, is giving them a sense of where you're coming from, of I am having a good time with these things and I like doing these things. That other thing's not a great fit for me. I'm actually not crazy about doing that. That kind of information for people who want you to have a good experience and don't really know how to do that, that kind of information is extremely useful. And it's the kind of stuff that, that may not occur to them on their own. Maybe you're comfortable doing that. Maybe you're not. You don't owe people that kind of explanation. But if it's something that you'd be open to sharing, a good organization will want to know that information. If you do share that information and they don't appear to like it, that's a good sign to find somewhere else to volunteer because that would be a very, very bad sign. And that takes us back to say no early, say no often, do that for your sake and for theirs as well. That is absolutely right. One of the kind of recurring things with the, the quiet quitting phenomenon and the stuff that I've, I've kind of read and seen about it 
is uh, in the particularly in the current labor market the idea of you know we lost a few people so we really need you to pitch in and take on you know Jerry's work and take on this project okay great you want me to do the work of two people what kind of pay increase are we talking about well none okay I'll continue to do the work of one person and get paid my one salary then. Right. <laughs> um, very critical of that. But I think there is a really strong analog in volunteering stuff. And it kind of piggybacks exactly on what Jed says there of, Hey, I'm sorry you guys want to do more stuff than you apparently currently have the volunteer power to do. But the answer to that is not me being in this building seven days a week. Yep. It's not a long-term answer because um, I'm going to burn out. It's not a good answer, as Jed points out, because like, I'm with Lee. I've been part of a, a wonderful volunteering experiences and organizations that really do run on a lot of volunteer power, and that's great. You can get a lot done. You can have really rewarding experiences for the volunteers and for the people being served and all that. But anything that hinges on one or two volunteers is a terrible idea. Yep. Because people get sick and people move and people have their schedules changed so they can't do that night anymore. That you running yourself ragged is not the answer for any number of reasons. And one of the beautiful things about being a volunteer as I transitioned from uh, staff to semi-staff to volunteer roles in several different organizations at this point in my life, um, not really your problem. Well, it doesn't mean you need to make things worse for the people in charge. And it's great to help out when you can, but, Oh, I need you to come in. We need you to, all the people want to volunteer in this particular ministry to come for this, you know, six hour training. Oh, I can't do that. Yeah. Oh, well, if you don't do it, we're not going to have enough people to do it. Oh, that's, that's a bummer. Good thing we pay <laughs> you so you can address those kind of problems. Cause I can't do that. Right. It is, it is an unhealthy dynamic for, the person who is in charge I, this, years ago, I can't remember who's uh, described this to me. It was someone who's on staff. I believe with young life. They said they're talking about, there's a fixed amount of stress in a system. So in a healthy system, it is the person in charge or who's getting paid who takes on a lot of that and tries to make it a less stressful opportunity for all their volunteers. A bad staff person will want to have their own very stress-free existence and just leave that stress to float into the atmosphere for other people to pick up if things are going to get done. That's not a healthy way to be, and that's not a thing you should necessarily buy into for all the really great reasons outlined by both these guys. All right, that is all for us this week. If you have a question for us, say at podcast gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com. We're going to say out a song this week. This is from our sister program, The Bridge Loud. This is called Weary. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God love you. There's nothing you can do about it. Let us now become.